Um, so, I don't think I need to even use this microphone, but I'm going to make it really uncomfortably professional now. <clears throat> I'd like to thank you all for coming out <laughs> to the open mic. Um, this is our, what, sixth or seventh installment now, I think. We have a really great lineup for you this evening. I've got Brianna Tart, the editor of Tusatala, which is now literally with us today in print. So, And, and they don't use editor. She's the president slash dictator of Tusatala. <laughs> she arranged a coup. It was bloody. And she's not giving that position up. I was joking earlier. You need to like carry like a semi-automatic around next year when everyone votes. You can be like, vote for the president. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Two T's. Make sure. <laughs> so Brianna's going to be our featured student. Uh, Archambeau was supposed to be our featured featured faculty member, but he got diarrhea at a conference <laughs> and returned to Chicago to the hospital. So he missed school for a few days. I, I I'm not saying anything people don't know because he posted about it on social media. So. If you follow him on Facebook or Twitter, you should know about his diarrhea. Um, so he, <laughs> he didn't get to do this event because he has committee work tonight, which uh, it's sad. We should all like pour out like some soda pop or Java Lanch in honor of like Bob Archambeau who's stuck in committee work tonight. It's a sad thing. Um, and then I will be the featured faculty member in his stead. I have no idea what I'm going to read, so we'll figure that out, because I think I've read all the original pieces I've written so far, so we might be in the repeats, syndicated action. And then we have an amazing visiting writer, Eric Charles May. His novel Bedrock Faith came out about a year, year and a half ago with Akashic, and basically got positive reviews literally everywhere. I, I think some dude pulled me over once in Kansas and told me how good it was. So... It's an amazing book, and it's set in Chicago, and I think you all really enjoy that, too. So I think at this point, let's go ahead and open this up to the open mic. So we've got a couple of people who have volunteered. I'm going to go ahead and say, Brandon, why don't you come on up and read your piece? So a round of applause. Hi, everyone. My name is Brandon, and this is something that I wrote for my creative writing class over the summer. We have been in this fucking car for four hours of pure, unadulterated hell under a never-ending dome sky. The kids in the backseat have finally fallen asleep, and the AM talk show on the radio is finally lulling me to sleep. Unfortunately, the gas gauge has fallen somewhere around empty, and the dog has started barking. My sister pulls into a well-located oasis, and everyone tumbles out of the car to use the restroom. I'm finally on my way home after a three-month vacation to the middle of nowhere in Wyoming to see my oldest niece get married. It had been a beautiful ceremony, more than remotely tinged with bittersweet resentment from the single bridesmaids and the steady hum of hormones from the groomsmen. I had been in the category of the uncaring and almost unwilling participant, forced to attend out of family ties and obligation. My niece had met her now husband on the side of the road on her way back from the feed store. His beat-up Jeep Wrangler had finally given up the will to live somewhere between Casper and any known civilization with an operating garage. She had pulled her pickup in front of the mechanical carcass, and as she sat in her locked car, staring straight ahead with him standing outside the passenger window for about ten minutes, debating whether or not this sturdy blonde frat boy looked like a serial killer. The awkward showdown came to an end, and she cranked down the window about a centimeter. What happened to your car? she asked, still uncertain of his intentions towards her virtue. That damned engine light finally got me. He said in a voice that sounded sweaty, important, and locking eyes with her pretty mouth. As they passed the border into the next county, she saw God in the form of huge sun tufts that seemed to point a finger at her and say, pass here and go on. I've always hated airplanes, and many would put me with those who invented the parachute. The dull hum of the turbine engines, the thick air saturated with germs assaulting your face streaming out of the fan above, and the person behind you who always seems to be coughing. Getting through security was always a pain before the terrorist attacks. But now, it's even worse. I get to the airport five hours before my flight, check a bag, and begin the three hours it takes to get through security. Bored parents with distant gazes and snotty, snotty whiny kids with their forever sticky fingers. Tourists lugging oversized luggage that would eventually have to be put in the belly of the 747. Overburdened men made to carry the luggage of three people where the girlfriends gab on the phone. And the pet owner making no attempt to control his or her animal. Finding them isn't the issue. Do you have any liquids in here? Asked the TSA officer, who really doesn't in fact give a shit what fiery detonators my bag may or may not contain, and is only asking out of regulation. And so on, and so forth, 
until I barely managed to escape with my life to the gate, with roughly two hours left until I can embark on my journey back to the twinkling lights of Chicago. I slip my noise-canceling headphones over my head and let their sweet silencing technology take me away from this hell pit. I'll sleep when I'm dead. My niece drove in silence for about two hours with, this, with that East Coast douchebag wannabe that had carefully redefined his farmer's tan and cast aside any tra trace of his cowboy roots. The countryside passed by in a yellow-beige blur, occasionally disrupted by a fence or telephone post. The scarce changes in the scenery were complemented by the varying heights of sheared mountains in the distance. As they passed by the jackalope on the hill, she gently punched him in the arm and they both started laughing. She found out his name was Jeffrey, and he was to be the temporary hand on her grandfather's ranch that summer. And they drove and drove until somewhere between sunrise and sunset, sudden gusts of wind assaulted the truck from both sides, and they were forced to pull over in a small town, not deserving of recognition. Cue the German air in the coffer. I fastened my seatbelt tight across my groin, as directed by a flight attendant who was probably being sustained by some sort of upper at the front of the aisle. Pull out the safety card from the seat back pocket. Blank faces. Calm as Hindu cows. As we taxi for an hour, the plane takes off without a hitch, and we are airborne, as is the seemingly contagious cough of the asshole behind me who makes no attempt to cover his mouth. I stiffen in my seat and attempt to relax, my headphones unable to tune out the turbine engines, and I read. They pulled into the parking lot of Motel 8, unable to withstand the gales of snow and the effects of a severe whiteout. The exhausted, overweight front desk clerk, who had been on duty since 8 p.m., assigned them to 224, and they headed up the steps. Checkout was at 10 o'clock a.m., and Continental Breakfast was at 6 to 9. They collapsed on the bed in the center of the room, which was probably covered with an unsavory and untold quantity of human secretions, and slept. Somewhere around 4 a.m., the timepiece buzzed and sounded the end of their combined slumber. And they headed downstairs to a breakfast of hard eggs, a disappointing array of bagels, and nearly expired play. And they continued on like deep-sea divers in raincoats and galoshes, and they had miles to go. As they continued on, they had the sense of nothing behind them, everything ahead of them, as is ever so on the road. After an hour of flight time, I bite the bullet, cram the pregnancy test I had gotten at a convenience kiosk in, at the airport into my purse, and head for the bathroom. After standing in line for an inappropriate amount of time, I enter and lock the door. It is the moment of truth. Well, almost. After spending the prescribed five minutes yanking my fingers through my hair and staring at my reflection in the mirror, I raise my unsteady hand and look at the urine-soaked strips. Bodily secretions. That's, that's a gross coupling of words. I always think of that episode of The Office where they're all party, partying in like the hotel rooms and somebody brings a black light into one of them and it's like, unbelievable. <laughs> So I just got a text. Apparently, there are like seven people hanging out in the skybox right now. Like, where's the event? What's going on? So you read for no, for no reason at all. You want to do it again? Um, I, I say we go ahead and roll forward, though. I think we have some more some reinforcements en route. I think I see all of them right there. In fact, because uh, campus is, we could. You want to wait and like watch them awkwardly the whole time? I mean, I'm down for that if you guys want to do it. We can just sort of like, come on. You can cut across the grass. It's okay. People do it. Uh, but let's go ahead and call up the next reader. I want them all to come in and feel awkward when there's a reading happening and they don't know where to sit because you all took all the seats. That's like a beautiful moment when that happens always. So I'm going to go ahead and call up the next reader. I believe, uh, Bernie, you're going to read, right? So why don't you come on up, man? Round of applause for Bernie. Right, so this piece is called, it's a short uh, fiction one, it's called Fall, like the season. So, bittersweet aftertaste and halfway cut through tongue in between his lips. Gregory felt like he lost his mouth last night. He didn't want to open his eyes because he could look at the same sailing he's been looking over the past years, but he decided to do so because no one would open his eyes for him. He looked at the sailing. There were 39 squares that divide the light bulbs and the structure of the building, reflecting the weak sunshine coming between the lines of the curtains. The sailing is not what bothers Gregory. It's just the fact that there are 39 squares and not 40 or 38. Somehow 39 is just a number. The floor was cold and his numb arms were not responding to the commands of his head. This was not the first time that it has happened. Oh boy, it has happened before. It's just that this time 39 has just become something that bothered him greatly. 
He began slowly winking, winking until he could control his eyeballs again. There was Chicago's famous rapper in the background, and his head was going nuts. He then began to move his fingers to the compass of the rhythms and realized that his toes were also moving as he was waking up in the middle of something that felt liquid and strangely cold. He was terrified that he had caught, his, that he had caught himself again without noticing like the past Saturday when he pushed the woman against the door and the door crashed in small pieces against the floor. He was terrified, so he started running. This time, he did make sure to lock all the doors and the windows and to cover all the corners with plastic paper and to throw away this, all the silverware utensils because their color is fascinating when you are in that state of mind. Silver can be as fascinating as the sunset in a summer being covered by the moon in an eclipse of colors across the horizon before the knife edge will touch his fingers. No, this time everything was set up. What could possibly be wrong? His legs were slowly uh, feeling the bloodstream going through the veins at the end of, the studs, of his tooth. He attempted to stand up once more, but it appeared that his legs were numb. He had catharsis, confusion, a mix of fused feelings between desperation and uncertainty. He had no idea what was next. Scott told him that it was normal to feel like this, um, and that everything was going down into the floor and into the ceiling. It would look like it's up in the sky, unreachable and beautiful. The same 39 square sailing would look so distant, yet so bothering because who the fuck decides to put 39 squares instead of 40? When Gregory finally had control of his own body and mind, he thought about Scott. He thought about, shooting, about shooting that motherfucker because he never told him he was going to be this strong. Naturally, he had an assumption, an illusion, but nothing else. He had learned this because he learned that one should never look back. The past has become something like living pain and one gets nothing from living there. It's all about today. However, Gregory has been revering lately. He's been having these daydreams during work, facing the cold temperature of the white screen in front of him and the constant click of the keyboard when he types. In this dream, nothing is real. Nothing is solid. Everything is a fucked up fantasy, like the one he had yesterday. He remembers that he was going to have a good time. Somehow he was pleased that he didn't happen because yesterday he had important realizations. He thought that since the Greek times, we've been thinking about how something should be rather than how something is. This is the problem of humankind. We experience something magical, something pure, and something unique. You never know what is real until you really discover it. And once you feel it, you really feel it. You take it to the next level. You want to repeat it, and repeat it by breaking the conditions of bi-dimensionality bi and reach the hyper-real feeling of perfection. Then you realize that every step in the constant look for perfection of what mother means takes us further away from the concept of now and leaves us behind the meaning of cons and leaves behind the concept of life. In other words, anything can be made to look like anything else and people acknowledge this. The society of anonymous we live by is shared by the cohabitation of physical space, the community is not there. Society has mechanisms to integrate the individuals that are unexplainable. He thought that we are just a bunch of drug addicts that, not, that do not know what is wrong, yet do not bother to look what is wrong. We don't know what is wrong with us. We don't know. Would we ever know? Yesterday, and not today, he went out to the city. He took the first metro to Chicago. He remembers that he had the blue shirt he was carefully taking care of over the past, year, over the past days, he had wearing the type of pants that could not permit him to walk properly because they were too tight. Why would anyone choose to wear these pants if you cannot walk on them? Oh yeah, he thought. I like the squeeze squeeze sound when they walk in through the city streets. He waited sitting in the metro terminal. He could barely see two people kissing at the end of the station when his steps interrupt their passionate kissing. In his clock, 10 o'clock, and he began to look for him desperately. He began to look among the people in the station, among the people coming out of the streets smelling like peace and alcohol that provoked him headaches. He felt like living, like going somewhere, anywhere but there. He calmly began to walk into the street when a ferocious scream was emanating from the end of the platform and he, as the kissing couple found a gang of gun dealers. While he was escaping this scene, he saw a black leather jacket. Scott, that was his name, or at least that's the name he told Gregory. The darkness of the night limit his visibility so it was difficult for him to see what his face looked like. All he remembers is his leather jacket. He lit a cigarette in front of Scott and realized that his face was the same as the one he looked on Facebook. His inexistent experience on the art of smoking were following by the constant coughs and Scott laughing at his face. He felt intimidated. 
he felt more intimidated and he heard his voice for the first time. Is your name George? <coughs> Gregory. Yes, yes, it doesn't matter. He answered when he took his car keys of his leather pockets. On the way, windows open and the cold Chicago weather, music loud and cigarettes. He asked himself, why do I do this? Am I doing this because I cannot find it anywhere else? What is this feeling? Would it be that in less than he expected, they got to the apartment in the south side of the city, empty streets and orange lighting from everywhere. This is dangerous, he thought. Yet, he didn't care. Why would he care anyway? He got off the scar shaking, both from the cold and the nervous feeling. Downheaded, he was counting the stairs. One, two, three, four, there were so many. He only remembered the sound of his steps walking upstairs and the sound of the door closing behind him. He fell to the ground. He felt his belt around his left arm, a headache, a cat licking his hair, and 39 fucking squares in the ceiling. Why did he do this? He thought. Maybe I did it because I wanted to. Because I wanted to prove something. Maybe I did it because I miss you more than I can possibly imagine. We're inherently attached to our defects that we don't look at them any longer. In fact, we're accustomed to disregard them and assume that they don't exist, but they are there, present, invisible, and painful as hell. Thank you. That was a story about our first year studies trip, wasn't it? <laughs> I'll never forget that time. <laughs> Spectacular. So we had a few people come late because your English majors and struggle with reading comprehension. Um, so welcome. Thanks for coming. Uh, this side of the room has already produced two open mic people, so I expect that you'll have two more over here. Is that accurate? Spectacular. So come on down. Who wants to go first? I see a, a beard s smiling at me right now. You want to you do this? All right, Hardy. You and your beard come up here and read. So have a round of applause for Hardy, please. All right. So I'm in a publishing class with NAB, and this first poem I found while we were, like, digging through um, the 1970s portion of Tusitala because we're creating this whole anthology. And, um, is this from Eggs? Uh, no, this is actually from Tusitala. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I think it's 72. But, yeah, so it's, it's really short. It's only one stanza, but it's called um, Moses at Clover's Bar. And I chose it because the guy's pen name is pretty unreal. His name is Inky Fox. And, so, and I kind of want to steal it for a character name, for, for a story. <laughs> That'd be pretty nuts. But yeah, so uh, Moses at Clover's Bar by Inky Fox. Down two shots of bullseye, put a light bulb in his mouth, and glowed 120 watts on Clover's corner stool. So yeah, that, that's the first poem that I chose. And then this next one, I'm... <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this next one I wrote for my senior seminar class with NAB again, and it's called The Mechanism of Happiness. They were dead in the eyes, looking for their own fix, never utilizing or progressing the mechanism of happiness. They were dead in the eyes, stranded in the corners, sightless to the passing eye, always keeping themselves in check. They were dead in the eyes, blinded by the night, with all that it held and all that it took. They were dead in the eyes, souls escaping to a steady beat, voices crippled to a mushy pulp. They were dead in the eyes, false prophets always bring the best tidings. They are dead in the eyes, false prophets always bring the best tidings. They are dead in the eyes, false prophets always bring the best tidings. All right, and so for my last uh, poem, it's like a section from this like band, they're li labeled under hip hop, but it's really like slam poetry with like ambient music going in the background. They're called Listener, and yeah, they're pretty awesome. Um, so this one's called Wooden Heart. We're all born to broken people on their most honest day of living. And since that first breath, we'll, never gr we'll need the grace that we're never given. Well, I've been haunted by standard red devils and white ghosts. It's only when these eyes are closed. These lies are, these lies are ropes, and I tie them to my stomach. But they hold this ship together and toss like leaves in this weather. My dreams are sails that I point towards my true north, stretch thin over my rib bones and praise th pray that it gets better. But it won't. At least I don't believe it will. So I built this wooden heart inside this iron ship to sail these blood-red seas and find your coast. Don't let these waves wash away your hopes. This warship is sinking, and I still believe in anchors. 
pulling fistfuls, pulling fistfuls of rotten wood from my heart, oh, I still believe in saviors. Because we are all made out of shipwrecks, every single board. Wash and bound like crooked teeth on these rocky shores. So come on and let's wash each other's tears of joy and tears of grief. And fold our lives like crashing waves and run upon this beach. Come on and sew us together, just some tattered rags stained forever. We only have what we remember. Thanks. Hardy Reddig. All right, so Taylor, are you going to go? Was that a nod? Okay, so we are getting the balance, I think, at this point. Although, honestly, percentage-wise, there are more souls on this side and more chickens, too, apparently. Because we have a concentrated group over here of, like, real poet, like real, capital R, capital P poets, who are willing to do it and lay it on the line. So I admire your small cordon of, you know, reading comprehension challenge, sort of, you know, spectacular. So Taylor Carlisle, come on down. Hey everyone, sorry I was late. Let's see, usually I'm pretty good about preparing something for these, but in honor of the event that I really enjoyed Tuesday night, I decided just to recite a story that I haven't written down, but I've always wanted to. Hopefully you'll like it. <clears throat> I think I was 18 at the time, and I use the phrase I think because the lighting in these kind of places it always makes it hard to know what everyone's actual age is. Earlier that day, I was buzzing on a beach from coding, coding in Mai Tais. So I was recovering from my wisdom teeth operation when my mom said, Taylor, take it easy on those. It's like an island version of a long island. But I want another one, was my answer. I think I was 18 at the time. Or at least that's what my ID said when I gave it to the bouncer. It said I was still 5 foot 10, 135 pounds when I had grown 2 inches and at least 50 pounds. I walked through a metal detector and I suddenly realized how young 18 was. We were being escorted to a table when a woman took me aside almost right away and took me into a back room. What do you want? What are my options? How much money you got? I don't have any money. I used all my money to get in here. You don't have any money? Do I look like someone who has a lot of money? Do I look like someone who's going to waste my fucking time? Get the fuck out of here. I walked back to the table where my friends were sitting. Another girl sat down, and she actually shared the last name of one of my friends. I say name because this is the kind of place where people usually go by different names. Hers was Rose. So of course he fell in love with her. And I say love because this is the kind of place that you wouldn't find love. I'm not sure what you're going to find here. I think I was 18 at the time because I'm not sure anyone else was 18 in this place, even though a lot of people told me they were. Another girl sat next to me, beaming, unlike the others, saying that her shift hadn't started yet. Do you enjoy this job? I love this job. I don't think she was 18 at the time, but I guess I'll never know. Thank you. Taylor Carlisle, for a minute there I thought you went into the bar with your mom and I was like, this story is going to take a turn I didn't expect. <laughs> you were not 18 at the time. Um, great open mic round, I thought, from everyone. Does anybody else want to go really quickly or are we, we're all happy at this point? I want to make sure if you want it, it's there for you. Okay, great. So I want to bring up the featured reader uh, who has a real whiz-bang opener prepared for you. Uh, Brianna Tart is a student who's been in a couple of classes of mine now, so far has displayed herself to be quite a writer, and in the last year has displayed herself to be quite an editor as well, taking over kind of a teetering Tusitala staff. There's a lot of alliteration for you there. 
she's uh, been able to get the, the issue produced, and it's fresh from the presses today. So uh, if you're in there, your work is now in print, and you should look for it. And if you haven't seen it yet or you're not in there, you should still keep your eyes open because I guess a lot of folks on campus don't realize that we have this lit journal called Tusatala. Uh, if you are a student writer and want to submit, I would 100% encourage you to do so. It is our 80th year, as Tart taught me a minute ago. I didn't realize. I thought we were in 79, so it's a nice round number. Um, so Brianna's got a piece prepared for you. She's going to come up and perform as our featured student reader for this iteration of the open mic. Let's give her a warm round of applause. Brianna Tart. My name is Brianna Tart. I like to fart. My farts are work of art. <clears throat> you listen if you have heart. That was a dare, and I don't back the fuck down. <laughs> so I had two poems. <laughs> I don't back down. Uh, no, but to appropriately start this, I guess I should thank everyone for coming out here. Um, I had two poems, but should I just read one? No, nope, read them both. Okay. We got the space for seven. That's true. Um, the first poem is, I'm going to do a cliche thing and read a poem after a heartbreak that was loaded with irony. Uh, I had a boyfriend of three years who decided to dump me for another girl named Brianna. That's, I'm okay, it's fine now. <laughs> How's the other one though? <laughs> <laughs> and and um, the other irony is that he broke up with her, called me and said, I couldn't stop thinking about you. Maybe that's because his name, her name was Brianna. Maybe, that could help, but hey. Okay. The title is called Anyway. He's not important enough to be a line in my poem, but I wrote it anyway. His name's not worth mentioning in conversation, but I say it anyway. His face and smile, I can't picture, but I dream it anyway. And the sound of his voice isn't loud enough, but I hear it anyway. Invisible to the naked eye, ignore my struggles and cry. I can't move on knowing that he's etched in my thoughts, sewn in my memories, starring in my future, but the show must go on. Until he realizes what he's done, his name will be a reminder that I am no fault finder. His face and smile will serve as a caution, reminding me, oh, sorry, his face and smile will be a caution. My hurt will soon soften. The sound of his voice will spark an alarm, reminding me to avoid his underhanded charm. And the idea, the idea of him will start to decay. At least, that's what I tell myself anyway. Um, this poem I haven't titled yet. I wrote it on Tuesday after the last open mic. I was pretty intimidated, so I thought I should come with something better than what I had previously. <clears throat> Untitled. Before this poem, no one really knew I had a brother. Different father, different last name, but same mother. I don't know what we've done to him, my sister and I. You see, we're twins, and we have a relationship that is hard to come by, which means we have the closest bond anyone can ask for, and my brother, well, our relationship is like a screen door. He's there, but not in his entirety, afraid to run into him because he builds up anxiety. Understand that to the world, he has half-sisters, but leave it to him and he'll protest that he doesn't have sisters. The resentment he had for our mother, leaving his father, carried on throughout our lives and made us a bother. 
my father my mother left my his father but hell she left mine too and trust me being a kid stuck in divorce is something you can't get through he got tired of having to grow up faster than us watching us enjoy our youth while he adapted into the new role of being the only man in the house a responsibility that he was not yet ready to obtain watching his childhood circle the drain separated we were but together we lived in the same house until he turned 18 grabbed his clothes and moved out I admit I tried to mold my brother into today's idea of what's a, what a big brother is supposed to be like. He kept making promises that causes progress but went nowhere like an exercise bike. I wanted him to be protective, threatening, fun, and involved, but there are some mysteries that alone I couldn't solve. He was supposed to be there for me. He was supposed to teach me how a guy is supposed to treat me. He was supposed to be there when I was broken up without a care. He should have been holding a bat meant for the heartbreaker that caused me emotional harm and ready to lean forward with the comfort shoulder to cry on. But no, I never got that. And for many years, it was a problem in my life that was never looked at until my niece. She was born February 2nd. 2013. It's hard to explain, but jealousy formed every time she looked at me. I mean, how could he prepare himself the role of a father when he can't even mold into my idea of a brother? All his attention will be spent on his new family, his new life, while my sister and I watch from the outside. And you know, it's true what they say. That fool doesn't fall far from a tree. He was just another man that couldn't wait to leave me. Us. Sorry. I think I'm letting some anger show, but it's hard, to, it's hard to get you to understand. It's hard to let it go. It's extremely selfish of me to have such thoughts, but you have no idea how desperate I was to fill his spot. My mother, my mother, she tells me that my niece could fill the void, but sadly, she had no idea what his actions had destroyed, and my sister, she couldn't be here tonight, and she has no idea that I've been feeling this way, but hell. I wouldn't be surprised if she was also in disarray. Because before this poem, no one really knew I had a brother. Different father, different last name, but same mother. And you would think that that's all it takes to keep a family together. Thank you. You were supposed to be so nervous, but you weren't nervous. It was because you had that great opening limerick or whatever that was. <laughs> so Archambeau was supposed to be our featured reader, and uh, Archambeau once won my magazine $5,000 uh, because he won a, a major prize, an award. And he won it on a poem that I'm going to read to you now. This is a prize-winning poem. Uh, it produced $5,000 for him and $5,000 for another Chicago magazine from the Illinois Arts Council. Uh, it's called Black Dog's Bedside Manor. And the only thing that I'll say about it, well, there are two things I will say very quickly about this poem. Uh, the first is that it's written after a poem that his mentor, John Matthias, wrote called Black Dog. And the second thing I'll tell you is he wrote this during the uh, post-9-11 war thing that was happening in America where we were all wanting to headhunt and there was all this sort of media push to fight and paranoia. Black Dog's Bedside Manor. For John Matthias in a losing season, the black dog depression at his side. The black dog's in the room with you, and what to do but wait until he bites. He'll wolf at your dinner, spill your whiskey, piss in the fireplace when you try to write. He'll bar the door, he'll stretch and lean, stare cross-eyed at your daughters, and then leer at your wife. He's slipped the bishop's muzzle, he's gnawed the lawyer's cat. Despite the best prescriptions, he's made the doctors cough. The black dog's in your bed with you, and what to do but wait until he bites. Spurt sprinting in his sleep, he dreams your prey, caught, clutched, and carried, cradled in his gentle jaw back home. 
In your dream, you run from him, or write, sit boy, or beg, or heal, or fetch. And in your dream, the black dog takes his bitch. Beside your bed and fevered sleep, he rests his paw upon your sweating head. He leans in to hear you muttering, play dead, play dead, play dead. It's Robert Archambeau, who is in committee meeting right now. <laughs> Instead of writing a poem, right? What, what the hell's wrong with that? All right, so I'm going to read a couple of short pieces that I have written that are nowhere near as good as Bob's. So I decided I would start with a great piece and then move on to my own mediocre work. Um, I, I once I used to do this reading series that happened uh, at this bar called Cole's Bar in Logan Square. And the way that the series worked is each month they would declare that somebody was dead. So I did like one for Iggy Pop is dead that's way too raunchy to read here. And I did one for Kim Gordon is dead. And I did one for somebody else, Bella Lugosi. I don't know what the hell. Um, so this is the one that I wrote for Kim Gordon is dead. And I, I just decided on this one that I found this weird interview where some reviewer asked Kim Gordon some really strange question about art and appropriation of culture. And she gave this garbled answer. And it didn't make much sense to me at the time, so I took the garbled answer she gave and all of those words and just sort of garbled them up more and mixed them up even more to sort of see what would happen if I moved them all out of place, if there would still be any meaning left in the poem. Uh, so this is a poem called Kim Gordon Number 1, and those, that was part of the original thing too. It's a bit with the star-struck dog's house, and that's what's taking so long. We have all these natural anarchists and revolutionaries, and art is making huts kind of really good. It's not there for criticism. People kind of glory your own ego, so we were always making and or skinning and drying it and throwing it off the cliff at things are going on. I'm not saying a Sonic Youth was a big cowhide Warhol art project for me, but you never quite feel everyone helps rap music out. Women make second-class African spears, in fact, but in a way it was an extension of records. It's nice to have the full power of a conceptual Dana Point around. Sex scenes are getting it all assessed, kind of having had to claw their way up. I love all that midlife crisis, citizens are awkward and a failure. I do have a lot going on down to the river when you're traumatized right now, and woman is books that ended in a kind of normal way. Because they've always been. So that's Kim Gordon, number one. Um, a weird little piece. So a friend of mine, and I'll end with this one. This one's really, well, you'll see. A friend of mine once was, uh, he was working as an editor for a journal, and he like sent out this like announcement that they were looking for work, but under no circumstances whatsoever would they take any work that had the words cancer and dog in it? He was not going to read any more cancer stories. He wasn't going to read any more dog stories. Um, so, <laughs> so I wrote a story, uh, yeah. It's called Pig Sweatin'. And the other thing I decided to do for this piece was to make it all be one sentence. Because I, I don't know. Why not? I, I've already got enough challenge with cancers and dogs. And why not just make it all be one sentence? So this is called Pig Sweatin' for James Tad Adcox, as per his rules and all at once. And this is real Appalachian, so my voice is about to change. Me and Don Ray was out in the garage pig-sweating Pete Ramsey's fat ass for pills while Harold and his band was practicing when Mindy Jefferson and Cancer Dog Atkins come barreling right up a driveway in his F-150 and got out and walked straight over to Harold and Cancer Dog took a beating him down into the ground, never saying word one with Mindy over him screaming, you just better hope I ain't pregnant because I'll own your ass, barrel-chested son of a bitch. And that just went all through me because Pete's Ramsey's Wait, sorry, because everybody knows Harold wouldn't fuck that skanky holler bitch with Pete Ramsey's dick. So I walked right up and blacked her eye, and that's when Cancer Dog turned on me yelling, You best mind your own fucking business, Nicole, you purple-haired bitch. And I screamed, This is my fucking business, because you made it my fucking business. And I shoved Cancer Dog and told him, You're free lunch, motherfucker, and your whole family will die wearing well-stained church clothes. And then I grabbed Harold off the ground with which is something considering I only weigh 105 pounds with my oxblood steel toe Doc Martens on. Thank you very much. But that's just how pissed off I was because Harold ain't like the rest of Boone County since he's going to be a famous country singer and I'm going to be his photographer and document everything we do and show the world just what they're missing while they sit in the bleachers at Skyhawk football games spitting Copenhagen into pop bottles stuffed with napkins and most of them either laid off or on workman's comp while their sons get their asses kicked. And not a one of them will say a goddamn thing about the fact that the principal and the 
math teacher just got busted smoking meth on school property because they're too fucked up putting pictures of Calvin pissing all over some NASCAR number on their fresh wash 4x4s and calling in to vote for some TV dance show on Sunday nights, fresh from church and full up with the spirit and clapping their guts out when their boys don't fuck up against the Sherman Tide and their asses numb from bleacher metal and they make me want to puke and that's exactly what I did. I puked up big hunks of hamburger and strawberry milkshake and half-chewed nerve pills right onto Mindy Jefferson and Cancer Dog Atkins and Harold started laughing blood pouring from his mouth and Mindy and Cancer Dog turned right around and got got into that truck without even wiping any of that vomit off, and they laid 10 feet of tire getting out of there so fast. And I could feel Don Ray and them looking at me at Harold like, holy fucking shit, did that really just happen? As I turned to him with half-digested purple clonopins burning my throat all to hell, and fuck you, I told him, if that wouldn't have made a perfect picture. So anyway. It's got cancer in dogs, right? It's, it's charming. So anyway. Um, our featured reader, it's a real treat to me to announce uh, Eric Charles May. I loved his book. He's a great dude, a uh, good drinking buddy, although I haven't gotten to drink with him as much as I would like. But uh, he's, he's agreed to come out here to read to us, and I'm just, like, really ecstatic about this. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Let's have a round of applause for Eric Charles May. Well, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, uh Jacob, and thank you, Lake Forest, for the invite. I'm looking here in this uh, Chicago Center. I didn't even know there was such a place here. And I'm seeing quotes from Carl Sandburg and, uh, oh my God, Studs Terkel and Nelson Algren. Uh, and uh, thank you for those uh, who read, you know, uh, part of the, Colum I teach at Columbia College in Chicago not too far from where uh, you have your Chicago semester. You're right there at Congress and, um, and Wabash. And, um, you know, part of our college uh, mission says we want our students to author the culture of their times. And, uh, but I think that's true of anyone who's writing anywhere. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, 40 years from now, when you're an old fart like me, and people will be wondering, what was it like to be a young adult, late teens, early 20s, in 2014, 2015? What was that like? And they're going to be looking at the writing that you're doing right now uh, to get not just what was going on, but how people felt about it and how they felt about themselves. And we got some, I thought, some nice examples of that uh, here today. I'm going to read uh, from my novel. Lower this just a tad. There we go. Uh, I'm going to read from my novel. Uh, it's titled uh, Bedrock Faith. And uh, it's about a guy who is terrorizing his neighbors with the word of God. Uh, he, he's follow, uh, his nick neighborhood nickname is Stew Pot. Uh, and he gets out of prison uh, after 14 years. Uh, moves back in with his widow mom, and they live in a, a far south side neighborhood called Parkland, which is like a middle class, working class, African American neighborhood, relatively calm place. And the state middle class African American neighbors are very worried because Stupot was quite the problem, quite the terror before he went away. He burned down one neighbor's garage, he killed another neighbor's cat. Actually, he was never arrested for any of that. He got arrested for something else because he's very, very good at breaking into places. Uh, but then his neighbors find out that he's had a religious conversion while in prison, and which some are doubtful of. Uh, but then they find that he's even more of a danger as this born-again warrior for God than he was when he was just a thug. And where we're going to pick things up is uh, a little ways into the novel. Uh, one of his neighbors down the street from him, um, uh, the Davenport family, are throwing a party for their daughter, Delfina. It's her sweet 16 party. And they've decided to go all out. They've rented caterers. They, they got a big tent. Uh, uh, you know, one of those parquet floors that they will put down in a yard or something for when they want to have these kind of events. And they've had a sit-down dinner, and all of Delfina's friends have dressed up to come to this thing. It's like in June. 
And uh, so at one point, it's time, uh, it's time to cut the cake. And uh, I'm going to start give a little bit of that, and then Stupot will show up later. Stupot's a really big guy. He's been lifting weights in prison. He's like six foot three, and he's got a shaved head and a goatee. And he wears T-shirts and overalls. And he has a dog, <laughs> a, a pit bull named, that he has named John the Baptist. <laughs> Before he went to prison, he had another pit bull that he named Hitler. But Hitler's gone. Yeah. Now he's had a religious conversion. Now his, his dog is John the Baptist. <laughs> so anyway, they're in the backyard of the Davenport's house. And the cake was set on a covered folding table on the patio with its lit candles arranged in the shape of a star. Mr. and Mrs. Davenport stood on either side of Delphina, the guests huddling close around three, on three sides. As they sang happy birthday, Delphina, in her pastel blue dress, clasped her hands in joy just below her chin. It was the first backless dress her parents had ever let her wear, and she was swept with the feeling that her life was finally at long last beginning. For now, she could drive alone and go on dates without a chaperone, and when the singers reached happy birthday, Delphina, it was just all too much, and she felt tears welling. When the guests noticed this, they smiled. Her father placed a hand on her bare shoulder. Earlier that evening, when she'd come downstairs in her dress, he'd said she had never looked so beautiful, and she'd felt a bubble of guilt for the harsh things she'd written about him and her mom in her diary, and the way she groused about her folks to her friends. One of the boys standing at the back yelled, Come on and blow out those candles, Dell. We want some cake. And everybody laughed, including Delphina, as she wiped at the tears with the backs of her wrists. And her dad kissed her on the cheek, and her mom kissed her on the other cheek, and somebody shouted, Del, Del, Del. And the rest of them picked it up, and they were all chanting, Del, Del, Del. And she leaned over the candles, the flickering orange light sending a fluttering reflection across her smiling face, the light sparkling off her diamond-stud earrings, a present her mother had given her earlier in the day, and off the pearl necklace that had once belonged to her grandmother. Delphina extinguished the candles with a long blow, bringing whoops and applause as the smoke whisks plummeted upward. Her father then said it was time for her big present. He reached into his pants pocket and took out a pair of car keys and dangled them in front of her. Delphina began jumping up and down in place, going, oh, oh. She took the keys, turned to her guests, held them aloft, and jingled them with glee. The guests clapped, her girlfriends already envisioning chauffeured trips to the mall, while some of the fellows imagined the exciting possibilities of backseat sessions with Delphina in the secluded spot in the forest preserve. There's a forest preserve not far from this neighborhood. It's an all-black neighborhood, in case you hadn't guessed. Where is it, she asked excitedly. Mr. Davenport nodded at the side gate and before you knew it, they were headed out the yard. In front of the house was a blue two-door coupe. During the dinner, Mr. Davenport had driven over from a hiding place in a neighbor's garage. The car was six years old and nothing fancy, but there were no dents or rust spots anywhere, and it had a CD player and new tires. Delphina climbed inside, put the key in the ignition, and gunned the engine, which brought another whoop from the crowd. She got out, threw her arms around her father's neck, and kissed him all over his face. She had to wipe her eyes again before leading the throng back, saying how she couldn't believe she had a car. She just couldn't believe it. And by that time, the caterers had removed the tables and chairs. The parquet floor was quickly filled with people dancing, the crowd driven there by the opening chords of that summer's most popular song. Even Mr. and Mrs. Davenport got into the act, moving awkwardly with the music, much to the delight of Delphina and her friends. Then before they wore out their welcome, her parents returned to the house. The music and dancing continued. Guys took off their jackets and loosened their ties, and girls occasionally hooked a forefinger at the edge of a dress top to get themselves some cooling air. The fellows getting excited, seeing all that female sweat. And then we go to the next chapter, and it's titled The Life of the Party. 
As soon as Delfina's parents left, one of the guys retrieved a bottle of vodka from his car and jacked the punch. Four songs later, Delfina and a few guests were on the deck, cooling off with the pumped-up juice when someone said, who's he? The birthday girl looked past the crowd on the dance floor and saw Stewpot standing in the alley by the low chain-link gate. His dog was with him, and he was glaring at the party, his thick arms folded across the bib of his denim overalls, the leash wound around his left hand. It should not be hard to imagine the anxiety that shot through Delphina at this point. Oh, God, what is he doing here, she wailed. Reggie Butler, feeling brave after two quickly consumed cups of jacked punch and eager to get into Delphina's good graces, said, You want me to get rid of him? Reggie lives down the street, and he is madly in love with Delphina. Of course, she wants nothing to do with him. She only invited him because her parents made her. Uh, Reggie led a squad of three guys to the gate, the angry set of their faces and their determined strides catching the attention of some of the dancers. It was a look those dancers had seen before at other parties and get-togethers, the look that said someone was about to get in somebody's face. With the music going, those not near the alley couldn't tell what was being said over there by the gate, but the gestures made it clear that the conversation was not friendly. Stewpot still had his arms crossed, as did the three guys standing directly behind Reggie. In the manner beloved by bad boy wannabes the nation over, Reggie spread his arms wide, then flopped them to his sides. Onlookers saw Stewpot's mouth move his white teeth showing in his sullen face. Reggie started motioning at Stewpot with his right hand, using the ever-popular pointed forefinger perpendicular thumb gesture, after which he clasped his hands in front of his crotch and cocked his head as if to say, what you got? They saw Stewpot mouth something else. Meanwhile, Delphina had recovered herself and was now marching toward the gate. The rest of the folks on the deck followed her. When she got there, the squad of four stepped aside for her. The other people trailing behind came to an abrupt halt. Folks from the dance floor began drifting over, and as they got closer, they were able to make out what was being said. What do you think you're doing, said Delphina, witnessing for Christ? That's what? Well, witness someplace else. I go where God directs me, said Stupot. Tonight he's directing me here, and I can see why. Look at you, dressed like a harlot. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. All of you should be ashamed of yourselves. It's like Sodom and Gomorrah out here. All this wild and sinful dancing. From the crowd came catcalls, wisecracks, and profane suggestions. Go ahead and laugh, Stupot said. You'll be laughing out the other side of your mouth come Judgment Day, which, by the way, may come sooner than you think. Cat calls, wisecracks, and profane suggestions came again, this time more numerous and louder. Delphina, standing at the gate, felt the collective body heat of the crowd on her bare back. The closeness gave her confidence, and she again told Stupot to leave. This was seconded from all over the crowd, their voices washing past Delphina's shoulders and arms. This wave of noise phased Stupot not one whit. He stood defiantly with his left hand on his hip, and still gripping the leash of the now-pacing dog, he used the other hand to point at them. Heed Proverbs 14, he shouted. God scorns the wicked, but the upright enjoy his favor. The catcalls and whatnot grew even louder. The heart knows its own bitterness, he continued quoting, and no stranger shares its joy. Uh, the crowd surged forward, yelling for him to leave, go away, get out. But he continued quoting Proverbs, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. This last line he delivered with a wagging forefinger. The crowd began booing like rowdies at a ball game. The dog began leaping at Stupont's side and barking. Stupont raised his right hand high with three fingers upright. Isaiah 3! For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Boo! Their partiality witnesses against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. Boo! Woe to them, for they have brought evil upon themselves. Boo! Someone lobbed a punch cup into the alley. 
The dog leapt at the fence in response, causing people in the first row to spring back and bump into the people close behind them, which caused those folks to bump into the people behind them. And no one noticed at first that Delfina was sobbing. They also didn't notice that the music had stopped. The chubby DJ, not sure exactly what the problem was, but fearful it might lead to serious trouble, like at some other parties he'd worked, had by then run into the kitchen where the caterer's people were peering out the window. I think somebody better call the police, he said. It looks like they're about to riot. At the fence, Stupak was continuing to quote from Isaiah, his left hand jerking on the leash to keep his dog from leaping the fence as the crowd jeered. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. As the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in flames, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and he stretched out his hand against them and smote them. And the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. There was a rustling at the back of the crowd, people being forced aside, the split moving forward. With his wife behind him, Mr. Davenport pushed to the fence and stood behind the anguished Delphina. She took, he took her in his arms and asked her if she was okay. She threw her face against his chest and kept sobbing. With one arm around her shoulder, Mr. Davenport pointed at Stewpot with the other and told him in loud and profane terms that he had better leave immediately. I call the police. You hear me? The police. I'm the one ought to be calling the police, Stupot said. With all the racket these children are keeping up this evening. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, Davenport, letting your daughter walk out of the house looking like that. Why don't you put her on the stroll and complete the job? Daddy, make him stop, screamed Delfina. Mr. Davenport made like he was going to open the gate, but the dog leaped in his direction and Mr. Davenport stopped. Mrs. Davenport, on the other hand, seemed ready to throw all caution to the wind, cursing a blue streak. She squeezed past Delphina's back and put a shoe toe through a square space formed by the chain link, looking like she intended to climb over the top rail. Such language, said Stupot Snidely, like mother, like daughter, I see. And they hear a police siren coming, but unfortunately it's not coming there. <laughs> it comes and then it goes and Stupot leaves. I'm going to read just a little bit more. The cops do eventually show up. But uh, a squad car did eventually arrive at the Davenport's house, but not until an hour later. By then, the yard was deserted and all was quiet. The two officers, both black women, got out of their white car and spoke on the sidewalk to Mr. and Mrs. Davenport, who had been waiting on the front porch. After patiently listening to, the angry tale, to their angry tale of woe, the older of the two officers, who was as light as Irma, she's one of the other neighbors on the block, with a sandy-colored head of curled hair said that while the Davenport's distress was understandable, no one had been assaulted, no threats had been made, no property had been damaged or trespassed, and nothing had been stolen. In short, no crime had been committed. The officers, who, whose nameplate read Jarper, said she and her partner would talk with Stupot, Mr. Davenport asked if they were going to arrest him, and Jarper said, not unless he does something stupid. With the Davenports watching, along with a few other neighbors from their porches and stoops, the officers drove down to the two-flat. As they strolled up the walkway, loud barks could be heard from inside. Jarper banged on the front door and shouted, Chicago police! They heard footsteps coming down the stairs and the unmistakable sound of dog claws clicking on floorboards. A man's voice asked who was calling. Jarper repeated that she was Chicago police and told him to lock his dog away from the door. The barking stopped. Several moments later, Stupont opened the door wearing a pair of cut-off sweatpants. He wore no shirt, his chest broad and well-defined in the glow of the light above the door. What can I do for you, officer? I understood you decided to crash a party tonight. Stupot's downward gaze moved to the younger officer who was darker and shorter with a button nose and hair tied back in a bun. I was doing some witnessing for Christ this evening, yes. You realize you ruined what should have been a wonderful evening for that girl. Some things are more important than parties. 
Tonight, the Lord told me to go to those young people like those sinners dancing around Aaron's calf. They were enough, said Jarper. You better watch your step. I could have an excuse to run you, and I'll run you. I'll run you faster than it takes a roach to get from here to there, understand? The only rule I obey is understand. Stupot frowned and said he understood. Jarper then pointed at him, remember, a word to the wise is sufficient. Jarper was driving the squad car, and after a U-turn at the railroad embankment, she turned again in the middle of the block. And she stopped there into the driveway and got out and told Mr. and Mrs. Davenport that she was sorry, but there was nothing more that she could do. If he starts anything else tonight, call. And then she was back in the car, and she and her partner were gone, leaving the Davenports to fend for themselves. Thank you. Eric Charles May. Let's have a round for all of our readers. A round of applause, please. Feature reader, Brianna Tart, the open mic participants, and Bob Archambault who could not join us this evening. Uh, this was the open mic. Thank you all for coming. We have, uh, I think the next event like this is on April Fool's Day. My 324 class is putting together an event in this building that will be uh, themed around the idea of tomfoolery. We have an insult puppet dragon that will burn you, face painting, uh, singer-songwriters, uh, Shakespearean acting, and free food, as well as some talented readers and stand-up comedians. So it should be a really fun event. I would encourage you all to come. And then on April 23rd, we have a blend hybrid thing between the Tusatala event release party and the next open mic. So we'll have uh, Joe Peterson here reading from his book, Gideon's Confession, and we'll have a bunch of talented student authors reading their work. So I'd love to see you guys at any or both of those events. Uh, thanks so much for coming out. Stick around. I'm sure Eric will be happy to talk with you or any of the other readers, and have a great night. <laughs>